An uncomfortable silence fell. Crass thought that the principal piece of bungling in this affair was Hunter's failure to secure the possession of the coroner's certificate after the inquest, but he was afraid to say so. Outside, the rain was still falling, and it drove in through the partly open door, causing the atmosphere of the mortuary to be even more than unusually cold and damp. The empty coffin had been reared up against one of the walls, and the marble slab was still stained with blood, because the keeper had not had time to clean it since the body had been removed. "'Yeah, well, I can see how it's been worked,' said Crass at last. "'There's one of the members of the club who works for Snatchem, and he took it on his himself to give the order for the funeral. But he's got no right to do it.' "'Yeah, well, right or no right, he's done it,' said Misery. "'So you'd better take the box back to the shop.' Crass and Sawkins accordingly returned to the workshop, where he was presently joined by Nimrod. "'I've been thinking this business over as I came along,' he said, "'and I don't see like being beat on this by Snatchem. "'So you can two can just put the trestle in the box on a handcart "'and we'll take it over to Philpott's house.' Nimrod walked on the pavement while the other two pushed the cart. It was about half-past nine when they arrived at the street in Windley, where Philpod used to live. They halted in the dark part of the street, just a few yards away from the house, and on the opposite side. "'Look, I think the best thing that we can do,' said Misery, "'is for me and Sawkins to wait here while you go to the house and see how the land lies. "'You've done all the business with us so far. "'It's no use taking the box unless we know the corpse is there.' For all we know, Snatcher may have taken it home with him. Yeah, OK. I think that'll be the best way, agreed Crass, after a moment's thought. Nimrod and Sawkins accordingly took shelter in the doorway of the empty house, leaving the handcart at the curb, while Crass went across the street and knocked on Philpot's door. They saw it opened by an elderly woman holding a lighted candle in her hand. Then Crass went inside, and the door was shut. In about a quarter of an hour he reappeared, leaving the door partly open behind him. He came out and crossed over to where the others were waiting. As he drew near he could see that he carried a piece of paper in his hand. "'It's all right,' he said in a hoarse whisper as he came up. "'I've got the certificate.' Misery took the paper eagerly, and scanned it by the light of a match that Crass struck. It was the certificate all right enough, and with a sigh of relief, Hunter put it into his notebook and stowed it safely away in the inner pocket of his coat, while Crass explained the result of the errand. It appeared that the other member of the society, accompanied by Snatchem, had called upon the old woman and had bluffed her into giving them the order for the funeral. It was they who had put her up to getting the certificate from the coroner, and they had been careful to keep away from the inquest themselves, so as not to arouse Hunter's or Crass's suspicions. "'Yeah, when they brought the body home this afternoon,' Crass went on, Snatchem tried to get the certificate off her, but she'd been thinking things over, and she was a bit frightened because she'd known that she'd made arrangements with me, and she thought she'd better see me first. So she told him she'd give it to him on Thursday.' and that was the day he was going to have the funeral-like. 
Yeah, well, he's going to find he's a day too late, said Misery, with a ghastly grin. We'll get the job done on Wednesday. Yeah, well, she didn't want to give it to me at first, said Crass. Well, I told her we'd see her all right if old Statham tried to make her pay for the other coffin. Yeah, well, I don't think he's likely to make much of a fuss about it, said Hunter. He won't want anyone to know that he's been so anxious for this job, will he? Crass and Sawkins pushed the handcart over to the other side of the road, and then, lifting the coffin off, they carried it into the house, Nimrod going first. The old woman was waiting for them in the candle with a candle in the end of the passage. "'I think we'll be very glad when it's all over,' she said, as she led the way up the narrow stairs, closely followed by Hunter, who carried the trestles, Crass and Sawkins bringing up in the rear with the coffin. "'Yes, well, I shall be very glad when it's all over, because I'm, I'm sick and tired of answering the door to undertakers.' If there's been one here since Friday, there's been a dozen all after this particular job. Not to mention all the cards that's been put under the door. Besides, the ones what I've had to give, given to me by different people. I've had a pair of boots be amended, and the man took the trouble to bring them home when they were finished. Oh, I think he's never done before. Just for an excuse to give me an undertaker's card. And then the milkman brought one. Yeah, and so did the baker. And the greengrocers gave me another one when I went there on a Saturday to buy some vegetables for Sunday dinner. Arrived at the top landing, the old woman opened the door and entered at a small, wretchedly furnished room. Across the lower sash of the window hung a tattered piece of lace curtain. The lower ceiling was cracked and discoloured. There was a rickety little wooden washstand, and along one side of the room a narrow bed covered with a raggedy, grey quilt, on which lay a bundle containing the clothes that the dead man was wearing at the time of the accident. There was a little table in front of the window, with a small looking-glass upon it, and a cane-seated chair that was placed by the bedside, and the floor was covered with a faded piece of drab-coloured carpet of no perceptible pattern, worn into holes in several places. In the middle of this dreary room, Upon a pair of trestles was the coffin containing Philpot's body. Seen by the dim and flickering light of the candle, the aspect of this coffin covered over with a white sheet was terrible in its silent, pathetic solitude. Hunter placed the pair of trestles which he had been carrying against the wall, and the other two put the empty coffin on the floor by the side of the bed. The old woman stood the candlestick on the mantelpiece, and then withdrew, remarking that they would not need her assistance. The three men then removed their overcoats and laid them on the end of the bed, and from the pocket of his coat Crass took out two large screwdrivers, and uh, one of which he handed to Hunter. Sawkins held the candle while they unscrewed and took off the lid of the coffin that they brought with them. It was not quite empty, because they had brought a bag of tools inside it. "'I think we shall be able to work better if we take the other end of the trestles and put it on the floor,' said Crass. "'Yeah, I think so too,' said Hunter. Crass took off the sheet and threw it on the bed, revealing the other coffin, which was very similar in appearance to the one which they brought with them. 
being a realm with the usual imitation brass furniture. Hunter took hold of their head and crashed the foot, and they lifted it off the trestles onto the floor. "'Well, he's not very heavy, that's one good thing,' observed Hunter. "'Yeah, he was always a very thin chap,' replied Crass. "'The screws that held down the lid had been covered over with some large-headed brass nails, "'which had to be wrenched off before they could get at the screws, "'of which there were eight altogether. "'It was evident from the appearance of the heads of these screws "'that they were old ones, which had been used for some purpose before.' and they were rusty, and of different sizes, some being rather larger or smaller than they should have been. They were screwed in so firmly that by the time they had driven half of them out, the two men were streaming with perspiration. After a while, Hunter took the candle from Sawkins, and the latter had a try at the screws. "'Oh, God, anyone will think these, <coughs> these damn things have been here for a hundred years,' remarked Hunter savagely as he wiped the sweat from his face and his neck with a handkerchief. Kneeling on the lid of the coffin and panting and grunting with the exertion, the other two continued to struggle with their task. Suddenly, Crass uttered an obscene curse. He'd broken off one side of the head of the screw and was trying to turn, and almost at the same instant a similar misfortune happened to Sawkins. After this, Hunter again took a screwdriver himself, and when he'd got all the screws out with the exception of the two broken ones, Crass took a hammer and chisel out of the bag and proceeded to cut off what was left of the tops of the two that remained. But even after this was done, the two screws still held the lid of the coffin, so they had to hammer the end of the blade of the chisel underneath and lever the lid up so they could get hold of it with their fingers. It split up one side, as they tore it off, exposing the dead man to view. Although the marks of the cuts and bruises were still visible on Philpot's face, they were softened down by the pallor of death, and a placid, peaceful expression pervaded his features. His hands were crossed upon his breast as he lay there in the snow-white grave clothes, almost covered in by the white lace frill that bordered the sides of the coffin, he looked like one in profound and tranquil sleep. They laid the broken lid on the bed and placed the two coffins side by side on the floor as close together as possible. Sawkins stood at one side holding the candle in his left hand and ready to render with his right any assistance that might be expected if it proved necessary. Crass standing at the foot took hold of the body by the ankles, while Hunter, at the other end, seized it by the shoulders with his huge claw-like hands, which resembled the talons of some obscene bird of prey, and they dragged it out and placed it in the other coffin. While Hunter, hovering ghoulishly over the corpse, arranged the grave clothes and the frilling, Crass laid the broken cover on top of the other coffin and pushed it under the bed out of the way. Then they selected the necessary screws and nails from the bag, and the hunter, having by this time finished, they proceeded to screw down the lid. Then they lifted the coffin onto the trestles, covered it over with the sheet, and the appearance it then presented was so exactly similar to what they had seen when they first entered the room 
that it caused the same thought to occur to all of them. Suppose Snatchum took it into his head to come here and take the body out again. If he were to do so and take it up to the cemetery, well, they might be compelled to give up the certificate to him, and then all their trouble would be lost. After a brief consultation, they resolved that it would be safer to take the corpse on the handcart to the yard and keep it in the carpenter's shop until the funeral, which could then take place from there. Crass and Sawkins accordingly lifted the coffin off the trestles, and while Hunter held the light, proceeded to carry it downstairs, which was a task of considerable difficulty, owing to the narrowness of the staircase and the landing. However, they got it down at last, and having put it on the handcart, they covered it over with the black wrapper. It was still raining, and the lamp in the cart was nearly out, so Sawkins trimmed the wick and relit it before they started. Hunter wished them good night at the corner of the street, and because it was not necessary for him to accompany them to the yard, they would be able to manage all that remained to be done by themselves. He said that he would make the arrangements for the funeral as soon as possible, maybe next morning, and he would come to the job and let them know as soon as he knew himself at what time they would have to be in attendance to act as bearers. He'd gone a little distance on his way when he stopped and then turned back to them. Yeah, well, it's not necessary for either of you to make a song about this business, you know, he said. The two men said that they quite understood that. He could depend upon their keeping their mouths shut. When Hunter had gone, Crass drew out his watch. It was a quarter to eleven. Little way down the road, the lights of a public house were gleaming through the mist. Hey, we'll just be in time to get a drink before closing time if we buck up, he said. And with this object, they hurried on as fast as they could. When they reached the tavern, they left the cart standing by the curb and they went inside, where Crass ordered two pints of four ale, which he permitted Sawkins to pay for. "'Are we going to go about this job?' inquired the latter, after they'd each taken a long drink, because they were thirsty after their exertions. "'Well, I reckon we ought to have uh, more than a bob for it, don't you? It's not like an ordinary lifting, is it?' "'Yeah, well, of course it ain't. We ought to have about, let's say, uh, uh, half a dollar each at the very least.' Well, little enough, said Sawkins. I was going to say half a crown myself. Crass agreed, and even half a crown would not be too much. Are we going to go on about charging it on our timesheets, then? asked Sawkins after a pause. If we just put a lift in, they might only pay us a bob, as usual. As a rule, they had taken a coffin home. They wrote on their timesheets one lift in, for which they were usually paid one shilling, lest it happened to be very high-class funeral, when sometimes they got one and six. They were never paid by the hour for these jobs. Crass smoked reflectively. Yeah, well, I think the best way would be to put it like this, he said at length. Philpot's funeral. One lift out and one lift in. Also taking corpse to carpenter shop. How would that do? Sawkins said that it would be very good to put it that way, 
and they finished their beer just as the landlord intimated that it was closing time. The cart was standing where they left it, the black cloth saturated with the rain, which dripped mournfully from the sable folds. When they reached the plot of waste ground over which they had to pass in order to reach the gates of the yard, they had to proceed very cautiously, because it was very dark, and the lanterns didn't give much light. A number of carts and lorries were standing there, and the path wound through pools of water and heaps of refuse. After much difficulty and jolting, they reached the gate, which Crass unlocked, and the key had been obtained from the office earlier in the evening. They soon opened the door of the carpenter shop, and after lighting the gas, they arranged the trestles and then brought in the coffin and placed it upon them. And then they locked the door and placed the key in its usual hiding place. But the key of the outer gate they took with them and dropped into the letterbox in the office, which they had to pass on their way home. As they turned away from the door, they were suddenly confronted by a policeman who flashed his lantern in their faces and demanded to know why they tried the lock. The next morning, it was a very busy one for Hunter. You had to see several new jobs commenced. They were all small affairs. Most of them would only take two or three days from start to finish. Attending to this work occupied most of his morning, but all the same, he managed to do the necessary business connected with the funeral, which he arranged to take place at two o'clock on Wednesday afternoon from the mortuary, where the coffin had been removed during the day. Hunter deciding that it would uh, not look too well to have the funeral start from the workshop. Although Hunter had kept it as quiet as possible, there was a small crowd, including several old workmates of Philpots who happened to be out of work, waiting outside the mortuary to see the funeral start, and amongst them was Bill Bates and the semi-drunk who were both sober. Barrington and Owen were also there, having left off work for the day, in order to go to the funeral. And there were two, in the sense of the representatives of the other workmen, for Barrington carried a large wreath which had been subscribed to for voluntarily by Rushton's men. They couldn't all afford to lose the time to attend the funeral, although most of them would have liked to have paid tribute with regard to their old mate. So they had done this as the next best thing. Attached to the wreath was a strip of white satin ribbon, upon which Owen had painted a suitable inscription. Promptly, at two o'clock, the hearse and the morning coach drove up with Hunter and the four bearers, Crass, Slime, Payne and Sawkins, all dressed in black with frock coats and silk hats. Although they were nominally attired in the same way, there was a remarkable dissimilarity in their appearance. Crass's coat was of smooth, intense black cloth, having been recently dyed, and his hat was rather low in the crown, being of that shape that curved towards outwards towards the top. Hunter's coat was of a kind of serge, with a rather rusty cast of colour, and his hat was very tall and straight, slightly narrower at the crown than at the brim. As for the others, each of them had a hat of a different fashion and a date, and their black clothes, so-called, ranged from rusty brown to dark blue. These differences were due to the fact that most of the garments had been purchased at different times from different second-hand clothes shops, 
and never being used except on such occasions as of the present. They lasted for, therefore, an indefinite time. When the coffin was brought out and placed on the hearst, Hunter laid upon it the wreath that Barrington gave him, together with another he'd brought himself, which had a similar ribbon with the words, From Rushton and Co. With Deep Sympathy. Seeing that Barrington and Owen were the only occupants of the carriage, Bill Bates and the semi-drunk came up to the door and asked if there was any objection to their coming. As neither Owen nor Barrington objected, they didn't think it necessary to ask anyone else's permission. So they got in. Meanwhile, Hunter had taken his position a few yards in front of the hearse, and the bearers of each his proper position, two on each side. As the profession procession turned into the main road, they saw Snatchem standing at the corner, looking very gloomy. Hunter kept his eyes fixed straight ahead and affected not to see him, but Cress could not resist the temptation to indulge in a jeering smile, which so enraged Snatchem that he shouted out, "'It don't matter. I shan't lose much. I can use it for someone else.' The distance to the cemetery was about three miles. So, as soon as they got out of the busy streets of the town, Hunter called a halt, and got up the hearse beside the driver. Crass sat on the other side, and the two of the other bearers stood in the space behind the driver's seat, the fourth getting up beside the driver of the coach, and then they proceeded at quite a rapid pace. As they drew near to the cemetery, they slowed down and finally stopped about fifty yards from the gate. Then Hunter and the bearers resumed their former position, and they passed through the open gate and up the door of the church, where they were received by the clerk, a man in a rusty black cask, who stood for a while and carried the coffin in, and they placed it on a kind of elevated table, which revolved on a pivot. They brought in foot first, and as soon as they had placed it upon the table, the clerk swung it round so as to bring the foot of the coffin towards the door, ready to be carried out again. There were special pews set apart for the undertakers, and in this Hunter and the bearers took their seats to await the arrival of the clergyman. Barrington and the other three sat on the opposite side. There was no altar or pulpit in this church, but a kind of a reading desk stood on a slightly raised platform at the other end of the aisle. After a wait of about ten minutes, the clergyman entered and at once proceeded to the desk, and began to recite in a rapid and wholly unintelligible manner the usual office. If it had not been for the fact that each of the hearers had a copy of the words, because there was a little book in each pew, none of them would have been able to gather the sense of what the man was gabbling. Under any other circumstances, the spectacle of a human being mouthing in an absurd way would have compelled laughter, and so would the suggestion that this individual really believed that he was addressing the supreme being. His attitude and manner were contemptuously indifferent, and while he recited, he intoned or gabbled the words of the office, he was reading the certificate and some other paper the clerk had placed upon the desk, and while he had finished reading these, his gaze wandered abstractedly round the chapel, resting for a long time with an impression of curiosity upon Bill Bates and the semi-drunk, 
who were doing their best to follow in their books the words that he was repeating. He next turned his attention to his fingers, holding his hand away from him nearly at arm's length and critically examining the nails. From time to time, as this misery, mockery and miserable proceedings, the clerk of the rusty black cassock mechanically droned out a sonorous Amen. And after the conclusion of the lesson, the clergyman went out of the church, taking a short cut through the gravestones and the monuments, while the bearers again shouldered the coffin and followed the clerk to the grave. When they arrived within a few minutes of the destination, they were rejoined by the clergyman, who was waiting for them at the corner of one of the paths. He put himself at the head of the procession, and with an open book in his hand as they walked slowly forward, he resumed his reading or repetition of the words of the service. He had on an old black cassock and a much soiled and slightly torn surplice. The unseeming appearance of this dirty garment was heightened by the circumstance that he had not taken the trouble to adjust it properly. It all hung lopsided, showing about six inches more of the black cassock underneath one side than the other. However, perhaps it was not right to criticise this person's appearance so severely, because the poor fellow was paid only seven and six for each burial, and as this was only the fourth funeral he'd officiated that day, probably he couldn't afford to wear clean linen, at any rate not for the funerals of the lower classes. He continued his unintelligible jargon, while they were lowering the coffin into the grave. And those who happened to know the words of the office by heart were, well, with some difficulty, able to understand what he was saying. And for as much as it has pleased Almighty God of his great mercy to take unto himself the soul of our dear brother here departed, we therefore commit his body to the ground, each earth to earth, ashes to ashes, and dust to dust. The earth fell from the clerk's hand, and rattled on the lid of the coffin with a mournful sound. When the clergyman had finished repeating the remainder of the service, he turned and walked away in the direction of the church. Hunter and the rest of the funeral party made their way back towards the gate of the cemetery where the hearse and carriage were waiting. On their way they saw another funeral procession coming towards them. It was a very plain-looking closed hearse with only one horse. There was no undertaker in front, and no bearers walked by the sides. It was, in fact, a pauper's funeral. Three men, evidently dressed in their Sunday clothes, followed behind the hearst. As they reached the church door, four old men, who were dressed in ordinary, everyday clothes, came forward, and opening the hearst, took out the coffin and carried it into the church, followed by the other three, who were evidently relatives of the deceased. The four old men were paupers, inmates of the workhouse, who were each paid sixpence for acting as bearers. They were just taking out the coffin from the hearse as Hunter's party was passing, and most of the latter paused for a moment to watch them carry it into the church. The roughly made coffin was of white deal, not painted or covered in any way, and it was devoid of any fittings or ornament, with the exception of a square piece of zinc tacked on the lid. 
None of Rushton's party was near enough to recognise any of the mourners or to read what was written on the zinc. But if they had been, they would have seen, roughly painted in black letters, J.L., aged 67. And some of them would have recognised the three mourners who were Jack Linden's sons. As for the bearers, they were all retired working men who had come into their titles. One of them was Old Latham, the Venetian blind maker.